Hey everyone, so I thought I would get back on here and record yet another episode of this thing, whatever it might be. The The name I've been using for it is just some... A working title, I, I, I haven't like put this into the beginning of every episode with theme music or anything because it's, I, I'm lazy, I don't want to do that. I don't want to edit that in. And I'm not really sure if that'll be the name but I've been calling this whole thing prosaic mosaic, which is not a name I like. It's just I it I thought of it because I own the dot com back in those days when I was like looking around for what domains are available. I, I somehow came across that one. I was like stunned that it wasn't available. I thought it was like so clever. It's like it rhymes and it could sounds like the perfect name for a blog. So I bought it and I've done nothing with it. And I was like, well, okay, if this, if this becomes something I want to do, at least I got the, uh, got the dot com, right? That's, that's the most important thing when you're doing anything. You want to make sure you have the domain name because you can't succeed at anything without that. <laughs> ah, yeah. So I went, I went pretty nuts the first few days and just did a bunch of, I recorded, I don't know how many hours worth of stuff, 20, 25. I didn't, didn't publish all of it, but I just talked for days. And it's a, it's a good way to pass the time. It really is. Uh, yeah. Like I always say in every one of these, you should, you should do it. You should try it. If you haven't, just put it out there, even if no one listens to it. Especially if you're like out there, like living by yourself, which I happen to be. I'm just in my apartment. And I, I, I have not been out and had like a real face to face with anyone except for once a week to the grocery store, just in and out as quick as I can. It was just minimum of pleasantries, basically no pleasantries. It's been yeah, six weeks. At least that. And yeah, this I think it's starting to take its toll on me. Like I feel like my brain is... It's not like I have a headache, but I just feel like there's... Like it's just contracting somehow. Like I just can't... I always have to... Like, I wake up early between 7 and 8. And by like mid-afternoon, I just have to take like a siesta. Like no matter what I'm doing, I, I can like exercise, I can I can read, I can go outside and walk around, but it's like I get to a point where my brain's just like, something's missing here. And you're just gonna lie down and go to sleep for an hour or two. Then I wake up and it's kind of like second wind and I just do that until the same thing happens in the evening. It's just, I think I gotta get out and like, I got to somehow find a way of talking to people. I have a couple of neighbors on either side of me. Like I have a patio and there's a wall and over the wall, there's a couple of the patios of my neighbors. I've thought about just like getting their attention, like tying a flag to a, the end of a broom or something and just waving it out there. Like maybe they'll see it and come over and just be like, Hey, we don't have to like be friends. And I know the whole thing. Like, there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother. I think it was that show. Like the 
like Jason Segel and that actress from American Pie, the flute girl. I wonder if she hates to be called. I wonder if she is called that and that's just what she gets. Nobody knows her name. I, what is this actress's name? God, there's an episode where they, they, they're living in a place in New York and they become friends with like the neighbors in an apartment on their floor or right next door. And it, it turns out that they, they don't have a lot in common. They don't really like them. And the neighbors are just really insistent. Like we have to keep being friends and they have to figure out how to like politely break it off with them. Like the same reason you wouldn't, you, you shouldn't date people you work with. You shouldn't, you know, date within your building. Like you should just, those kinds of boundaries are probably critical. And I guess it is kind of a risk. I guess, I guess if I, I, I could strike up a conversation with them and who knows, who, who knows what I would, I don't know anything about them. I've never, I've never seen them. I've heard one of the guys talk on his phone sometimes, but I, I don't, uh, I, I don't listen. I just know he's talking. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I'm okay. So I'm now on Bumble. I just now got on Bumble. I seem to be going through like the apps one at a time. And I realized that I hate being on these things. I, I like I've, I've talked about this before, but just I've, I got on one back in January and a few weeks later I realized this is just the wrong way for me to to try and meet people that I might want to potentially get romantically involved with it's just not my thing I would rather go out and and try any other way I I don't like that this has become like like Aziz Ansari wrote that book uh Modern Romance and in it he talks about how this is now the this is not how most people meet other people. It's it's no longer stigmatized. It's not like you're just like in the early two thousands. It was like you're you're some social weirdo who has no other recourse. Like you have no other way of meeting people. So you you get on the internet. That's the reputation that the internet always traditionally had. In the last five years or so, that's kind of gone the other way. It's like this is this is just what people do now. This is the new normal. It was based on some study from Stanford, and I don't remember how big of a survey it was. I'd like to believe that it's wrong somehow. But anyway, I'm, yeah, so I got on Bumble. I was on Tinder for a while. I did some stuff on OkCupid. I, I don't like OkCupid because it feels, it was acquired by Match, and now it's got ads on it, and it just feels... I don't know. The thing is, I really, I, I've never done this. I've never tried one of those. I don't even know what they're called. I just know of them. Like, like the webcam sites. Like you go on and there's just some girl who's doing things that you can, you can watch her. Some of these dating sites feel like that. It's not because the women are doing anything lascivious or inappropriate. It's just this, the site just, has that feel to it design wise that's the the overall vibe i get and i i can't it just feels weird being on there 
Anyway, so yeah, Tinder, uh, Bumble, these kinds of apps, they have a different feel to them. They don't feel like that to me. Uh, so I was on Tinder for a while, just swiped around, connected with some women, didn't end up, uh, well, I matched with a few, sent messages and got no messages in response. And was like, okay, I think this has run its course. I've swiped through everyone and I just deleted it. I think that was a couple weeks ago. And in hindsight, I certainly didn't misrepresent myself. I was kind of like, look, I'm just an intellectual fellow. I'm open to silliness, but I'm looking for deep intellectual conversations just because of the pandemic situation. I'm not looking to for a long-term relationship or anything serious. Certainly not looking for hookups. Just who wants to talk? And didn't end up connecting with anyone. But I've been thinking about it the past few days. And I think just just the swiping, just the, like saying to my brain, like feeding it images, like here's some people that you could potentially meet. You may never meet them. Right. I think just fooling it to say, like, look, these are human beings that are out there and close to you and you, you might be able to talk to them on the phone or get coffee someday. Like, I think that's enough, even if it never comes to that. It's just it's just an illusion. It's it's the, it's a little bit of water I see on the horizon in the desert that just keeps me walking a little bit further. It gets me closer to the other side of whatever this is. And so now I'm on Bumble and I'm just slowly swiping through. Ah. Yeah, I really don't like this. I would rather be doing anything than that. I've been trying to read. I've been trying to like watch less television. And I'm trying to read books that I traditionally would not have, have read. I do remember somebody saying, like, books Books are difficult to read, classics. And most people don't get over that hump. Most people just read easy things. And that's what I've always done. Now, I will read difficult things when it comes to education, nonfiction. When it comes to learning, I would much rather get a textbook about some subject and just read that for fun. Uh, that's my recreational reading in order to learn. So when I was learning physics, I had heavy physics textbooks along with math books to, to try and put that all together. And I, I don't know, I'm not a physicist, it was just it's it, it, it's just the same way that like reading good literature doesn't make you a writer, but going through it does. It's a challenge you want to overcome, kind of like what I'm talking about with uh, reading books. Uh, but I, I always want the textbook. I want the hard thing, and I want to to learn with that kind of rigor. Uh, I. I I generally don't like the popular stuff. I'll read the physics textbooks and I won't read 
like Brian Greene or Stephen Hawking or, or the popular stuff by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like I, I want the hard stuff in any given subject. And I really don't read a whole lot of fiction. Um, I talked about this in, in the last, in an earlier podcast about how when I was growing up, I, I started reading popular literature. It was Michael Crichton, Robin Cook, Stephen King. So fiction carried me through grade school. I only read for academic purposes really in, in college. You have to do so much reading in college that you, you get out of class, out of school, and you, you don't wanna, you don't want you to stick your nose into a book Uh, and then it was after that when I, I realized I got a job after college, and I, I learned very quickly that like this is not the end of your education. Like you have to keep learning, and you, you really should learn as much as you can about as many things. Just keep feeding your brain stuff, because most people will not do that. And if there's one thing I'm like pathologically focused on, it's how to be different. And I'll get back to that, that last point. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to like force myself to sit down with something heavy as far as literature goes. That isn't philosophy, like I'm talking just fiction. So in particular, I have Dostoyevsky's Crime and Punishment. So I'm trying to force myself through the, uh, the earlier parts of that book. And I think ideally I would have a piece of classic literature that is both difficult to get through, but has, has some sort of momentum to the story. And once you reach a certain point, it will just carry you through because it's absolutely, it's completely absorbing. And I don't know what piece of fiction would do that. I don't know what classic work of literature would, would facilitate that. I'm just, I would just naturally be propelled through the, through the text, through the story. I don't exactly have the option of uh, trying a bunch of different options. I, I don't have much fiction. I, I have even less fiction that would be considered classic literature. I have a, a first cousin. Uh, I think it's first cousin once removed. Whenever I saw him, we used to talk about this. He would explain what the once removed meant. So it was the difference between a first cousin and a first cousin once removed. That always came up. We always ironed it out. And it was always so confusing that I, I never remembered what it was. I, I think he was the first cousin once removed. But he used to give me books. Uh, he was, and he, yeah, he was the best guy I ever knew. He was, he was an attorney, and I remember he was a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and I, I don't know what that means. Uh, he certainly wasn't working for oil companies, uh, taking bribes to politicians to get you know people drilling uh, 
on some land reserved for the, I think he was a Republican, but he was extremely liberal socially. He, he was stand up for the environment. He was an openly gay man. Um, so he, he was very socially liberal and he was definitely what you would call an activist. He was an attorney, so he knew the law. He was into politics and he used to just wherever he was. I remember asking about this because it seemed to me like he had accomplished a lot. He, he apparently, I learned this after he had passed away, actually, uh, a couple of years ago. But when, when the country of Namibia liberated itself from, I, I, was it South, South Africa? Whatever country they liberated themselves from, he was one of the guys. I think there were a lot of people, but he, he went over there and helped them set up the government. Like whatever the founding charter, whatever the founding documents were for the government they set up establishing this new country, he had a hand in crafting those. like every time we talked about him there was something else like that something he did a very very like accomplished person he was the nicest guy you could ever want to meet um yeah god yeah and at some point i resolved to not eat chick-fil-a just because of the political situation uh, voting with my wallet. And at, at some point, last time I saw him, which was four years ago, he, uh, he mentioned like, oh yeah, if you do me a favor, don't, don't ever eat there. And I was like, well, hey, you know, I was, I was on board with that before, but since you just said that, I'm, I'll just, I'll, if I'm crossing the desert and it's either Chick-fil-A or I'm starving, I'll, you know, I'll consider taking the risk of starving just for you. I'm with you. I got, I'll back the cause. But, but I asked him once, like, how, how do you campaign for justice? How do you fight for what you know is right in a world where maybe things are, are wrong? And I'll never forget what advice he gave me. He just said, you have to, you have to just fight however you can wherever you are. At the time I had just left a job, I was between jobs and I was trying to figure out, okay, where do you go next? Very much the way I am right now. And I was being somewhat idealistic about it. I was saying, what, well, maybe there are social causes I could go get involved with, get a job for, I don't remember what I was thinking. Not not Planned Parenthood, but something like Planned Parenthood. You know, something that would be controversial and would be working to accomplish some kind of social change. And he didn't advise against that, but I asked him, in your own life, how is it? How did you do it? And he he said, well, it just it's you you basically fight the fight, fight the good fight wherever you can, wherever you are. And so he mentioned being at a job 
a few decades ago, very, very early on in his life. I think he was a lawyer. It's one of his first law jobs where there was a pretty clear bias in the workplace. Like it was, it was led by men. Men had tended to hold women positions of power. They were, they were promoted more readily. And so he just, he, he had conversations with people. He got to know people. He increased his influence interpersonally with the different people at the company and just work to turn that around. Just ask questions like, well, I observe this. Can you explain this to me? You know, not being antagonistic, not being, not like, you know, saying things are wrong and trying to like start some kind of revolution. What people are, are calling social justice warriors, like he wasn't, taking that attitude or, or, or trying to come at people that way. But he was like, that's all you can do wherever you are. He was also, he was also a, a Christian. He was also a devout Christian. And to the extent that I ever was, to the extent that I, I picked up on Christianity at a young age and just kind of kept it in the back of my mind, uh, from a very young age, it was because of him. He used to send me books and they very often had Christian themes. Or they were, he sent me one that was very great. It was just basically about the Easter story, about the resurrection. But he, he, he said that you know, he used to be involved in churches he he moved around a lot. He didn't stay in one place for his life, but he would he would go. He would he would join a church wherever he was, and he said that on a couple of occasions, they did basically the pastors, whoever was in charge, had a, had had a very unenlightened attitude towards homosexuality. Not necessarily acrimonious, but not not welcoming, not understanding. And so he he would join the church and then get involved with the leadership outside of just being an attendee and he would he would campaign in his own way again just having conversations with people to, to change that I, I wish I had asked him more questions I wish I had had better questions for him when I talk to him, because I think in terms of being an effective human being and making change in the world, I, I've never known anyone who, who did, who did anything like that. And just in every aspect of his life, it was figure out how to carve out what you want, leave your mark and do it in a way that isn't just it's not just setting up a, a, a bed for yourself. It's trying to leave behind something or, or create something that it benefits the community you're in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I miss him. But to the, to the book charge... 
uh, yeah, he used to give me books. And I remember one book he gave me in high school, which I never read, was a copy of Les Miserables. And so I, I found the same copy that he gave me, which I, I haven't held on to. It was a very large book. I found it online and got a copy of it for pretty cheap uh, a few months ago. And I haven't read it, but I have that one too. And that's that's another one that's close to a thousand pages of a story that I think most people know, but it's very lengthy, very involved, set during the, the French Revolution. I might try and plow through that one. In terms of fiction on the more, not quite the classical literature side, but just stuff you could read. Uh, I also have The Three Body Problem, which I have not read. Um, but I have read a few books. And I'm working my way through a couple about the, basically the historical setting in which the book takes place. I think The Three Body Problem is roughly about It's about aliens coming to some, some encounter with alien beings finding their way to earth and they have advanced technology. And somehow this ends up in the hands of uh, Chairman Mao Zedong in the middle of the cultural revolution. Like in 1962, I wanna say that starts and onward. What if they had had really advanced computerized technology that could enable them to do things it's kind of like a, a spin on the old question of what if you went back in time and gave the Confederate side of the uh, United States during the Civil War machine guns? How would history have played out differently? Something, something like that, I, I think, is the, is the overall premise of the story. I know it's a trilogy. I only have the first book. Um, but yeah, of course, I wanted to I wanted to learn the history of China before I actually, or of the Chinese Revolution, of the Civil War. God, that is some brutally depressing reading. I, I was volunteering at a soup kitchen, just chopping vegetables, and I was doing it with a uh, professor from Stanford, a, a professor of data science, and his specialty was uh, physics, and geology, chemistry, so applying data science to those. And he was uh, looking for metals, where you would find deposits of certain metals that go into batteries. And he was from Belgium. And I learned about uh, King Leopold uh, the second from him. Apparently, King Leopold is. If you look at like brutal dictators throughout history, and you rank them in terms of the number of people that they killed, like genocidally or basically that died under their watch because of abuses of power. Uh, Mao Zedong in Maoist China is number one. King Leopold in Belgium is number two. 
I did not know that. I'd never heard of him. I, of course, would have guessed Stalin or Pol Pot. I know Hitler wasn't quite... Hitler's up there, but he's not... He's definitely not in the top five. Same thing with Mussolini. On the list, pretty high up, but not at the top. Yeah, that I didn't know. I think it was King Leopold II. Oh, yeah, but China. China is definitely not. Mao was crazy how communism just doesn't. I don't know. I, I wonder if people always say, well, you look at China and you say communism doesn't work. And the thing is, it was never communism. Well, I guess that's the point. I mean, Mao. Mao did not embrace a hatred of capitalism. He did not embrace a hatred of wealth. He just, he liked wealth for himself. He just didn't want anyone else to have it. It's like, as long as I'm, I'm rich, as long as I can like win at whatever this game is, but maybe that's the problem. Maybe, maybe that's the danger of statism and maybe that's the argument against uh what we some form of marxism is that if capitalism points to it always ends up tending towards inequality because of human nature then if you give a particular people or a person or a set of people control over how to allocate resources they're going to allocate them to themselves they're going to favor resource allocation. So you don't want the economy to be controlled by the government. It's actually something I, I, I don't, there's a lot of things I don't know. That's actually something I couldn't articulate clearly. Um, definitely read stories about revolutionary Russia. And I've read about China. And I know a little bit about Marxism, not a lot. I know more about neoclassical and Keynesian economics. I'm not so much clear on Marxism. Uh, not enough to say I know exactly where it goes wrong, but it, it seems like empirically we understand that it will always go wrong. The cases that we have so far, it doesn't, doesn't look good. But I don't know. I, I have to be careful to suspend judgment. There's a few things I think I know enough about to say. There are many things that I, I maybe have some impression or some thought, but I, I, I'd, I'd be slow to defend it. How did we get here? Okay, so yeah, three-body problem, Les Miserables. Dostoevsky books, trying to pass the time during this whole thing. Yeah. Well, that, with a couple last few things I've, last couple podcasts I've recorded have, have leaned on religion. I, I can really talk about that a lot. If you talk, if you stick me in conversation with people and say, just go talk about whatever. 
I really have to drive it, that will it will naturally gravitate towards that way more than I would like. My brain just fixates on things and I I spent a lot of time learning about that. I spent a lot of time learning about other things, but those those are difficult to just relate to culture. I do remember learning learning basic molecular biology, learning about the cell, like stuff that you learn in high school, like what are the organelles inside of a cell. Interestingly enough, I didn't know this. I forget where I read it, but there there are hundreds of little tiny organelles inside of human cells that we don't know what they do. in eukaryotic cells. So, you, of course, you have the nucleus, you have the Golgi apparatus, you have um, your uh, mitochondria, the uh, endosymbiotic powerhouses. Um, trying to remember any other ones. Anyway, there, there are apparently... These are the ones that are, you, you see in biology. And if you buy like the biology coloring book, you're gonna. These are the things you're gonna be learning about, learning the function of, and, and coloring in with your pencils. Uh, but apparently, there are hundreds of tiny, tiny little organelles in a human cell that have some function. We assume there must be a reason that they are there, but we do not know what they do. I, I find that fascinating. The way Richard Feynman used to say there's an ever-expanding frontier of ignorance. We're always kind of advancing the limits of what we know, but the boundary overall is, is growing. Fascinating to me. But Whenever I was reading up on molecular biology, like, like the couple books that I have on it, I went back to them uh, recently and looked for stuff about virology in particular because the mechanisms of viruses are radically different than they are in, in normal uh, prokaryotes and eukaryotes. In terms of an alien life form, like something that just does not resemble anything uh, that you might find on Earth, it looks like it just came from outer space. And especially something that might pose a threat to us, that you, you could do a little better than to dream up a virus. There is not much to a virus. It is just some, it's a little thing with RNA, and this is why it is not altogether alien, because RNA is probably not going to find that out just floating through space. Um, and then a delivery mechanism. Some protective code protects the DNA and some way of, of administering this when it comes across a, a normal organism. I don't know any of the details beyond that. That's the, the minimum that I know. But it's, I have at various times in the past thought about 
you know, it might be interesting to learn about virology. I, I really do wish I had basically followed through on that and acquired the textbook. It would be it would be fascinating to be able to study that. I, I may still get that actually. There there are a couple I have my eye on. They're very expensive, and I'm trying not to buy any books right now. Um, I'm trying to very at the very least keep the number to a bare minimum, both because I am not working, and I'd like to budget my finances wisely. Uh, and, and I'm trying not to get things shipped to me if I can avoid it. Because that, that inevitably means I have to go down and interact with somebody in order to get my packages. That's, that, that's, that's unnecessary risk at this point. But it, it seems to me that I, I probably will do this at some point. I will say I've got to learn about viruses and how they work. I want to know the, the ins and outs. Because if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that we are probably going to be, I think we, we might be stuck roughly where we are now for the, for the foreseeable future. I've, I've heard people say this, but it's not that we go back to normal, especially not right away. It's going to be a long time of, we have this yeah, as as the president would say, this invisible enemy. We do have this this invisible alien thing that poses a threat to us. And we're going to have to figure out how to resume normal operations, but in a way that this has this poses a minimum amount of risk to us. So it's going to be something that we are going to have to manage, I think, going forward. And there's talk now, I just saw this on a couple of news programs, they're saying that this is, this is probably the first wave, in that if you look at the epidemiology of like the flu influenza outbreak uh, back during World War I, uh, it came in stages. There was an initial small peak, and then there was a second much larger peak later on. And it seems like they think something like that may happen here. This, what we're in now, spring of 2020, is the first wave. And next winter, uh, under what conditions, I don't know what, what how this would be true but roughly saying they're projecting the next next winter there would be a second wave so we might end up having to do all of this uh, a second time and i i i don't i'm just i'm just geeking out over the science it's it, it's an excuse to learn something but i really i if i'm being honest with myself what would i do if i understood how 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 this how this novel coronavirus we're all hiding indoors from it, how it how does it sicken a person when it gets into their lungs how does it attack how does it it uses it actually turns it 
it's kind of like a Trojan horse in the sense that like it, it uses the system's white blood cells against it. So the white blood cells attack it. And it, it I, I forget exactly what it does, but it's, it's sneaky. It knows how to like fly under the radar and then hit us below the belt like a lot of viruses do. Just whatever whatever signature it gives off, we don't. Uh, I wondered if this wasn't when the outbreak first started happening. I wondered if this wasn't a time when CRISPR could shine. And I I have not looked into this, but that that would be of limited use. It's not as though you could. What you could do is potentially insert. Maybe a fingerprint that would allow cells to recognize that this is an invader and they should attack it as such. I wonder if there's something you could do. I haven't thought, like if you, I don't know what the life cycle of a white blood cell is. If it were short, then I guess you could, if you could teach new white blood cells, like whatever is producing white blood cells, if any new ones got generated, you could use CRISPR to update somebody's system so that new generated white blood cells are aware of this invader. They can identify it correctly and not fall for its trap. Something like that. I always wondered if this would be possible. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a... Leave this to Fauci and the experts. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. Uh, yeah. How did I get on this? Yeah, so I, I, I like to learn things, not for any practical reasons, but just to learn. I think I have to do less of that. I think I've I think I've had I think I've had a good run. I think I've sp spent the last ten years just sort of furiously learning about new things. I've forgotten almost all of it. Like I won't learn about the civil rights movement. Yeah, gotta do that. I don't remember any of that. Remember some things. Science, computers, I like the fact that, okay, here's what I hate about my major. Um, I studied accounting. That is both a, a plus and a minus. I I think if I had to, I, I haven't worked as an accountant in 12 years now. And I, I really wasn't keeping up on it when I was. So I, effectively, I've... It's been so long, I, I think I would have to do some salesmanship. I'd have to brush up on the material a bit if I really wanted to go back into that profession. But I think theoretically I could. I think if I needed, somebody needed a bookkeeper, somebody to, to use software to do some, I'm sure I could get that job again. What I realize now, what I absolutely despise about accounting is that it really, it has no history. It has no developments. There are no 
fascinating accountants from history who have pushed the field into new boundaries. If, if I remember this all correctly, I think there was a monk in the 14th century or something that invented double-entry bookkeeping, essentially what we know. You credit one side, debit the other. There's really not a whole lot more to it than that. Any developments that have come after that have been... They're not things you would find that fascinating. So it's not like there's this rich history, like these these people that were great intellectuals who made contributions to the field and they've pushed us to a radically new place and a new understanding of how companies report their numbers at the end of every year. Occasionally you'll get new re regulation, like Sarbanes-Oxley went into effect in the middle of close to the time I was graduating with my degree because of um, WorldCom and uh, Enron. That might have been 2002. But there's... I, I, I never looked into it. I, I got away from that pretty quickly. Like I ended up jumping from being an accountant to being a programmer it did not take long for my energies and, and my focus to shift. But I, I do wonder how effective that was. I have some understanding of what went wrong with, with Enron. Although it was very, very complicated. Uh, and I have a very, I have a much better sense of what went wrong. What WorldCom was doing was much simpler conceptually. They just did a lot of it. But I don't know how you... I don't know. Outside of, like, teaching people ethics, teaching people values, I don't know how you guard against that sort of thing. That's That's exactly the thing. I don't know how you make developments in that field that one prevent future problems and you know would make things clearer it seems like as long as as long as you have financial statements that are as long as you can do what enron did which is essentially create an entire paper trail that is almost impossible to follow basically the numbers at the top are backed by this jungle of information that you cannot sort through easily. That's, I, I don't see, that seems like that's always going to be possible, no matter what you do. How could you guard against that? The regulation that came in the wake of Enron, it, it, it's, it's just going to leave different loopholes. People are going to find some other way of doing this. But anyway, yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's not even like there's, you've never heard of Sarbanes-Oxley, but that's probably the most radical thing to happen in accounting, at least when I was like working in the field. There's, there's probably been stuff since then. I guess there's been updates to the tax code. I'm not a tax accountant. I would not want to do that.
but yeah, there's there's not like towering intellectuals that I have immense respect for. I, I can look at almost any other field that I've been interested in. Um, computer science has its greats. You have people that made significant strides in developing the hardware. And I guess those are more, those are more physicists originally. Now they're like computer engineers. Mathematicians, you have people making great strides in math. You have your Bertrand Russells. Speaking of Bertrand Russell, like philosophy. You, you have people who are making significant strides, like they're pushing the subject matter itself to completely new grounds. At least the really, really good ones are. You don't see that in accounting. Like there, I never had a history of accounting class. I never had a class that said, here's, like if anything, there was maybe three pages at the beginning of a very large textbook that said, here's how we got here, now let's get into it. Even Even if you're a lawyer, You've got, you've got uh, maybe 2,500 years of a philosophy, the philosophy of law, jurisprudence, stuff you could go through. Like, how did we get here? What are the different schools of thought as far as what the law should be and how does it relate to morality? Maybe you're not interested in that stuff. Just tell me what the, you know, federal regulations are concerning X, but it's still there. There are still people advancing. There is no philosophy of accounting. Nobody's trying to figure out how to think about these things in more profound ways or think about things differently uh, so as to prevent fraud. <sighs> yeah. Not a not a job I'm keen to get back on. Although I would rather be an accountant than a philosopher because I, I think you, you can you can find a job. You can be an accountant and finance a life in which you study philosophy if you want to. Where was I going? I'm not sure I was going anywhere. I think this is very free form. Hmm. I talked about, I've been writing, I've been recording a lot of stuff about religion. I don't want to get too much into that uh, directly. Like, here's what I think about this. Here's, um, here's one thing I like about scripture in the sense that it is, if you if you have religion and you have a country of people who are generally all familiar with it, it is a topic that you can leverage general knowledge when you're getting to know people. You can probably do this with anything. If, if I were more familiar with some popular TV shows, for those of you who don't know, Tim Gunn and Heidi Klum are back. They did Project Runway. They have a new one on, I think it's on Prime, but it's the same basic idea, like a reality show in which you have a bunch of fashion designers uh, competing with each other for something. And I, I remember watching some of Project Runway when it was on. I, I didn't dislike it. Uh, I remember my ex-girlfriend used to watch it. 
and I would catch it. Uh, when I'm just sitting in the room, I, I would be aware of it. And I, I tried to watch the new one. I'm trying to remember what it's called. I started watching it. I put on the first episode and tried to watch it, but it was just, it was too much of a reality show. I, I started watching it because I wanted to learn about fashion. It's like, I want to learn some of the terms, the techniques, like let's just absorb some of the argot. As long as I'm sheltering in place and quarantined, this, this might be interesting to learn something about. This is my brain doesn't know about these kinds of things aesthetically. So yeah, tell me what is color blocking, et cetera, et cetera. I, I want to learn these things. It was it was not that so much as it was just a reality show. Um, it was just it was all about the competition. You're not learning the craft of the fashion industry. You're just you have to be invested in these people, and I have a very difficult time investing in characters in that kind of show. It's not that I don't like them. I just it, for some reason it doesn't appeal to me. I just I can't I can't focus on those kinds of people. Or I can't focus on people in those kinds of shows, really. I mean, regardless of who they are as people, you never really know. At least they're real people. I have an easier time engaging with fake people in film and TV. I can't engage with the, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about reality TV. I'm not like I was in my 20s. I'm just a snob about it. Like I refuse to watch that because it's beneath me. Um, yeah, I just I I can't I can't get into it. Another one, my my coworkers in my last job before I left, they told me I had to watch Love Is Blind. They really loved Love Is Blind on Netflix. I think the premise of that one is it's some it's a dating show where. I think it's it, the format of it is it might be like speed dating. It's a bunch of people who all have to like get to know each other, but they don't get to see what the other person looks like. And so basically blind in the dark without any knowledge of what the other person looks like, just on the strength of conversation, they have to decide whether or not they like these people. And I I, I haven't seen it. I, I was told I should should watch it, but the way they were talking about it was just like it, like the way you would talk about any reality TV show. Like, oh, I can't believe so and so did this. Um, just the way they talked about it led me to believe I probably would have a very difficult time getting into it. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe that's. Maybe that's what I need to wake my brain up. I need to not be on Bumble or Tinder, you know, to try and pass these days and, and stimulate my brain in a new way. I need, I just need some reality TV. I need to force myself through that. I need to force myself through Dostoevsky. Just power through it and power through reality television. Two polar opposites. Just force myself through them. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, so it's it's common. I think if you're, I think any shared element of culture is something of a Rorschach test. And I don't know reality TV, but I mean, I mean, scripture can kind of be that very thing. It's not even necessarily scripture, but just what somebody's opinion of religion is. 
and I'm going somewhere with this that has nothing to do with religion. Trust me, this is not going to drag on. Uh, one example of this is I, I have I have a friend uh, that I talk to sometimes from high school. He might be listening to this, so for, to, just to be clear, this is not meant to be insulting. It's just a, an accurate statement, uh, an observation. But at some point, Christianity came up, and he he mentioned casually he kind of said like oh you know jesus started his church in order to make money he didn't quite say that but that was very very close to that it was roughly the sentiment the underlying motivation for starting a church on bar on the part of jesus of nazareth back then was he he wanted to make money and i think that 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 betrays um, first of all, there's absolutely nothing accurate about that. Like, if there's, I've never read anything, incorrect or otherwise. And if, well, I've read a lot of conflicting accounts of who the historical Jesus was. They can't all be right. So there's some of it's misinformation. Um, but I've never read that story. I've never read that anywhere. That, that Jesus had some underlying greedy motive. And he was like, well, the best way of doing that would be to you know, start this religion. Not like the story of L. Ron Hubbard. It seems very, very clear cut that Scientology was created to basically extract money from celebrities. It looks that way to me. Or from people. Uh, there's... There's nothing like that. I've never read that story. And now I think what you could do, I think you could look at proselytizers now. You could look at televangelists and you could say, that's what they're doing. And I think a lot of them are. I've always been somewhat confused by that. It's, it's pretty clearly stated in there that uh, it's easier for a uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't quite understand how you have Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers filling stadiums and, uh, you know, essentially having these lines you can call and you can pay people to pray for you. You can donate. They're selling tons of books. I mean, good on them. They're filling stadiums. They're helping people. But it, it seems to be in contradistinction to exactly what they are preaching. But I think you could look at that and you could cynically say, well, that's that's how this whole thing started. There was some greed motivation and that this has just been propagated um, down. But that was the original the original sin, if you will. That's almost certainly not true. And I think that what that says is it is more of a Rorschach test. It's a, it's a blob on a, on a sheet of paper and you say to somebody, what does this look like to you? Jesus is kind of our, our Western civilization's archetypal ideal man. How do you regard him? What does he look like to you? How do you interpret him? What's your impression? If your impression is he was driven by greed, I think that says more about the observer than it does about the historical Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to insult my friend at all. I, I think I, I would guess there's there's he has some opinion about money. 
I think that's driving the impression. And you could say, well, what, what do you like? What do you think about religion? And it's either, it's either you don't have knowledge of Christianity, so it's, it's a void, and let's say nature abhors a vacuum, so you have to fill it with your interpretation, even if you don't inform yourself. Or if you're like me, you are informed. You have read the Gospels many times. You've read most of the Bible all the way through. Uh, you're familiar with it. And then the question then becomes not what do you think of it? The question is what stories resonate with you? What parts of it stick out? What aspects uh, do you like about the character of Jesus? Why does he appeal to you as a person? What, what strikes you as being the thing you should emulate? He is the ideal man. The idea is we're supposed to all be like him. And I can tell you very, very quickly, um, my favorite passage is the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is Matthew 25. It's the third parable in there. And it's essentially uh, who ends up going to heaven. It's the people who help the poor and the less fortunate is the point of the parable. It's a beautiful passage. I still love it, even though I'm not any stripe of Christian, but it's just very poetic in the way it expresses that. And two, um, Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees in particularly the Gospel of John. He does this in all the Gospels, but uh, John chapter 8 is a good one. That starts off with the, um, the woman taken in adultery, but shortly after that it seeks into the, the religious authorities are confronting Jesus in, in Jerusalem in public, and he's basically berating them. He's saying, you have lost sight of yourselves. You have lost sight of God. You are corrupt. And, he, and he's really reading the riot act. He's proclaiming his own righteousness, his own divinity, saying, you deny me because you're out of touch. And there was a lot in there that spoke to me. So I think rebel. Rebel is definitely a, a word that uh, characterizes me. I'm very rebellious. I'm very contrarian. You know, socially, I don't like to just, I'm not comfortable just fitting in. If, if everybody's doing X, I would like to do not X, do something orthogonal to it, if not completely the reverse just to stir up trouble. Particularly if I think that whatever is in place, whatever authority is in place, not working. Um, in my younger days, when I was a teenager, of course, I rebelled just to rebel. Now I'm pretty, I'm pretty tolerant of established systems provided that they work. I think where they don't work, I'm very cynical. I'm very, I'm looking to find new ways of doing things. And you can put those two together. One of my favorite passages is um, in John chapter five, which is um, Bethesda. What is Bethesda? Anyway, there's an invalid 
who can't walk. And uh, he's trying to like get into the, this, this public bath to clean himself, but he can't. So Jesus comes along and says, you know, do you want to be made well? Heals him and tells him, okay, now that I've healed you, pick up your mat that you're sitting on and walk. And so Jesus heals him and slinks away into the crowd. And the religious authorities, the Pharisees, see this man walking along with his mat. And the passage says that it was the Sabbath. So you're forbidden to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So they confront him about it. And he says, some guy just healed me. I was unable to walk. I was paralyzed for 40 years. And this guy just healed me and then told me to carry my mat. And I love that. I love that because it's both of those elements put together. If you, you heal somebody, you do some good for somebody, you help somebody where you can, but you have this way of just kind of like messing with the authorities. Like just very subtly giving them the middle finger. You're still doing some good though. It's just righteous action. Oh, I love that. But yeah, so I think I think that can be a, a good way of like saying, okay, well, I'd like to know more about you. If if you if you tell somebody what your interpretation or what you like about, you know, the prevailing mythology of your culture, I think it says a lot about who you are. And if you look at what it is that you, that's the quickest route to, it's one of the quickest routes to knowing something about yourself that might not otherwise be obvious. What are the stories that you like and why do you like them? And I have been trying to think about that. I, I'm, I am sitting around right now between jobs, trying to figure out the next thing. I don't know what that's going to be. And I am taking this into account. I'm taking into account that I do, I've always liked at my, at my core, I have liked being able to help people. And I have liked looking at systems, established organizations, established order, established rules, and calling them on their bullshit when I see it and refusing to go along. And here's another story I like. This is like the story of um, the invalid in Bethesda. Um, Richard Feynman, I mentioned earlier, uh, was a physicist um, who founded the field of, uh, among other things, he founded the field of quantum electrodynamics. And he worked on the atomic bomb at Los Alamos. Now, when he was stationed on the, on the military base at Los Alamos, uh, there was apparently a hole in the fence in the back of the property. So people used to sneak in and out of there instead of going through the front gate. Like if they wanted to leave the grounds and go out into the, into public, into the city, like sneak off the, the, the base where they were developing the atomic bomb. Uh, people were using this hole in the back of the fence 
to sneak in and out. It's the duck protocol. You don't have to check in and out. Your, your commander does not know that you're leaving. So Richard Feynman learned about this. And this I, lo- this I love, the spirit of just... So he started using this hole, but what he would do is he would only use it to sneak out. So he'd sneak out through the hole in the fence. And then he would go around to the front and like act as if he were arriving. Or he'd go out and do something, but then he would, when he, whenever he came back, he was going in through the front gate. And so this agitated the people who were at the front gate because they're like, there's this guy who is always arriving, but he never leaves. <laughs> it's just like he, so, so it's, he's, he's not ratting people out. He's not surfacing the problem directly. Uh, but he just has this playful way of kind of sending up a signal, like just a, a, annoying somebody. And so, of course, the authorities catch on to this. They say there's this guy who is always arriving, but he never leaves. And so they, they, they call him in and they say, like, what's going on? And he tells them, like, yeah, there's this hole in the fence that people sneak in and out of. And they, they dress him down. They say, well, don't do that anymore. Don't use that hole in the fence. And he's like, well, I'm not the only one using this. And, you know, it, it is a hole in the fence that you guys could definitely fix. Like, it, it's a problem that really you should solve. Like, I'm going, I, I'm going to keep doing this. Like, basically, me using it is not the problem. But I, I, I love this sort of just rebellious spirit. It's, you know, um, <laughs> just doesn't quite want to be a tattle tale. Um, just playfully, playfully messing with those in authority. Um, I love that sort of thing. I love those sorts of stories. So I'm I'm trying to wonder if my next job shouldn't embody both of those elements. And I'm trying to figure out if being in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, I'm, I'm trying to decide if this is the correct place to do it. That's a very, very difficult thing to assess. I mean, if you if you work in tech, this is where the options are. Um, certainly, if you're trying to do anything to, you know, upset an established system or industry, if you're going to try and achieve critical mass to do that, and that requires headcount, that requires talent, this is the place to do it. Like if I wanted to hitch my wagon to some force that was really trying to make change in the world, it, it's more than likely going to happen here, especially if it is tech-based. On the other hand, it, it's I've talked about this before, the technology in Silicon Valley. It's while you do have smaller companies that are trying to get started, Things here are very established. Um, You did have new social networks emerging. You had new search engines emerging. 
10, 20 years ago. Those large, all-encompassing things are largely settled now. What you have are people trying to do things like come up with novel applications of blockchain, basically the, the cryptographic mechanisms that back Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, for example. People are trying to apply those uh, to different areas, different industries. Uh, you you have a lot of talk about augmented reality now. Like, what what apps could you build for that? Um, but it, it things are generally well established, and that is, of course, always true. That always has been true. Um, you could have come to Silicon Valley thirty years ago, and you would have said the same thing. Like, well, everything that has been done, that can be done that there's a need for has already been done. And I'm not so much concerned about that. I don't think that is the, I think to every generation there, there is some massive unsolved problem that eventually it's time has come. The technology has caught up and it, it facilitates new things and the economics of the industry, the, the need relative to other things that have, come into place like there's always going to be some void to fill but what's different now is that the cost of living here is so high that to some extent if you if you are living here and you're working in tech I, I'm not sure that you have the space like yes there, there are a lot of people living here and this is where you would expect uh, just sort of as a matter of course, for any sort of revolution involving technology to happen. This is where a group of people are going to coalesce and they're going to do it in all probability. However, once you have people that are paying as much as people here are paying in rent, once you have you have people that are, that are buying houses and in order to do that, they have to be basically independently wealthy or you're living like me and, and you're living in an extremely expensive one bedroom apartment and that's most people where you have service workers for the city like civil servants police officers firefighters teachers like commuting into the city because they can't afford to live here with their families then people end up very very risk averse you do not end up with a kind of culture where people are, are looking to upset things as much as as much as disrupting i think is the word that always gets thrown around it, it becomes very very difficult as an individual with an idea to disrupt things in this kind of environment so on the one hand yeah lots of people easy to, to achieve critical mass uh, but unfortunately, most of those people that might make up your critical mass are generally not looking to take a risk on something big or create something speculative purely for achieving social change. And so I'm really considering it. Maybe this was the experiment. That was the original idea. The, the thinking was 
four years ago when I was looking around and, and realizing I could go, I could effectively move just about anywhere. I did not own really anything. It was all just in my car. And, and it seemed like I was going to be readily employable um, as a programmer just about anywhere I moved. Like any city I moved to, I could have found a company to employ me, if not 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 some glamorous tech company, but I could have at least gotten some organization, some nonprofit within a city to hire me to do something with computers, which is still true. Uh, I'm certainly not a you know whiz bang top of the line you know um, I'm not a world class programmer. I've I've gone for breadth of knowledge in many domains instead of any one particular area. I'm a generalist. And I, I try to be adaptable, more adaptable to new circumstances and lots of new things than I am specialized in any one area, which is pros and cons. But essentially, I could, I could move to a new city or potentially a new country right now. And it might be time to do that. The, the original idea four years ago was, I'll try going to Silicon Valley. I think it's kind of been in the back of my mind. It's, it's a dream I would like to pursue. If I'm going to do it, my mid-30s seems like the time to do it and not later when I'm 60. I might not live that long. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure get, jumping into Silicon Valley in tech is going to be, would be harder when you're much older. Not impossible. Most most companies are not overtly ageist, but there's certainly that, that that's a factor. If you don't consider that as somebody working as a programmer, that you will eventually that your options are monotonically decreasing as you get older. If you don't think that, if you don't believe that, you are kidding yourself. That is always a factor. Not in any one particular instance. But generally, that is always something uh, people consider on the average, on the average. And if not on the average, then it still happens. Happens enough that it's something you can't just neglect. And so I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. If I... If I do have some penchant for helping people, and I, I am something of a rebel who wants to up, overturn like some established order somewhere that is uh, not good for people in general, if, it, if, it's, if there's an active harm in the world that I have some, some ability to affect change in, is it the right time for me to, to do that now? And as a technologist, how do I do that? Where where should I go? So I'm trying to think about this and I'm trying to consider how my present circumstances might be factoring into this decision, like how it might be factoring into my leanings. So, 
what I mean by that is I, I keep dreaming about work. Uh, the job I just left. I, I, I've been away from there for about two months now. But I, I keep having dreams that I'm back there. Like I've gone back to visit people and I'm just hanging out. Or I've gone back and gotten my old job back and I'm, I'm jumping back in because for some reason. Or it's just like I never left. Like I'm just back there working because... Because... And I, I don't, I think it's just my brain, like, because the sequence of events that happened was I left that job and then almost immediately I had to just stay home and not go out and not do anything and not talk to anyone. So if you're my brain, it would seem, unless you know, unless you're Putting, taking all factors into account, which it's not clear to me that your, your subconscious is going to be aware of a pandemic like this and aware of the ramifications. I think my brain is just telling me you have to get back out there and talk to people. And the last, the last situation you were in where that was happening with any regularity was when you were working. So it's like, please, please go back to this job. This was it's pushing me towards that just because it doesn't know any better. And so I've developed, especially recently, the last few weeks, this inclination to leave San Francisco. As happy as I was to explore the city, to get out and see everything. As excited as I was. Um, I feel this, this as soon as I have the chance to give my landlord notice. And to, and to move out of here, get rid of all my things, uh, and, and look for a job somewhere else. And that, that would not be in the Bay Area. That would be, I don't know. That is very much the question. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I do, I guess I'm trying to give myself limits. Like you, you have, I have to give myself a deadline for all of these decisions. I mean, um, do I want to stay in San Francisco? Do I want to stay in the Bay Area? Do I want to remain an engineer and that I'm building an app for some company or do I want to do something else in technology? If you don't stay here, then where do you go? If you go somewhere else, where exactly are you working? How are you going to find a place to live? feel like I need to figure out the order in which these decisions should be made and give myself a deadline for each of them. And I'm, uh, of course, hoping that I don't have to, I'm hoping the shelter in place thing lifts eventually. If, if four months from now, we're still all sheltering in place, that might start to look at some point, the impact on my finances of just sitting around not working is going to become a problem. And if I, right now, the building I live in has suspended move outs. I can't hire a moving company to come take my stuff. I can't get rid of the things that I wouldn't take with me. Um, so I'm effectively here. 
I've thought about this. Like I may have already left. I may have already moved to another part of the city. I was actually exploring that, moving to another area of San Francisco, uh, moving west uh, prior to this whole thing happening. And it's all just been put on hold. And it's not a problem yet, but, you know, six months from now, if things are still very much the same, well, it would be unfortunate, but I'd still, I'd, I'd still be okay. It wouldn't be a good situation. I don't think it would be a good situation for the rest of the country. Most people in this country, it's, that would be just too long, both psychologically and economically. I don't know. I do wonder how long this lasts. Anyway, I think I'm, I think I've been talking about this for long enough. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was a beautiful day today. Sunny. I went out and just sat in the sunshine, soaked up as much of it as I can, which I have not been doing, but I was like, let's work on a sunburn, let's work on some skin cancer, just absorb some natural vitamin D as much as I can. So good. Anyway. In the midst of all this, in the midst of this whole pandemic thing, the shelter in place, wherever you are, uh, I hope that you are healthy. I hope you remain healthy and that you and yours are doing well. Uh, hang in there. We're going to get through this. Um, yeah, wishing you the best. Sending you the best. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.